Welcome to Texas Ag Today, a daily look at the latest news in Texas agriculture. Texas Ag Today is produced by the Texas Farm Bureau Radio Network with the largest farm news team in the Lone Star State. Now here's the host of Texas Ag Today, Carrie Martin. Hello and welcome to another episode of Texas Ag Today for Thursday, September 24th of 2020. I'm your host, Carrie Martin, along with the largest and most experienced farm news team in the Lone Star State. And we're all standing by to bring you the latest news in Texas agriculture. More money is available to help farmers and ranchers fight feral hogs. I'm Jessica Dolmull, and I'll have that story coming up. The latest on Central Texas cotton crops and an award for the region's AgriLife Extension Agent. I'm Tom Nicoletti, and I'll have those stories on Texas Ag today. One of the first considerations when purchasing hay is that it should be based on animal requirements. We will discuss the importance of a forage analysis for feeding hay. I'm Dr. Vanessa Olson from Overton. We'll have those stories plus the latest news from Washington, Texas wildlife news, and a complete look at the markets all coming up. But first, here's a look at news headlines. The sugarcane aphid is still hassling Texas panhandle sorghum farmers. But James Hunt tells us there's a growing arsenal of defenses. As typically happens late in the season, the aphid has made a return, but its impact appears to be down this year, at least in grain sorghum, with credit going to advances made by plant scientists. We've got a lot of tolerant grain sorghum hybrids identified now, so a lot more of those are being planted. The aphids will get on those hybrids, but they just multiply a lot slower. However, Dr. Brent Bean of the Sorghum Checkoff says infestations have been stronger on the forage sorghum side, where there aren't as many tolerant hybrids. I think that's changing. I think in the next couple of years, we're going to see some new hybrids coming on the market in the forward sorghum world that do have some tolerance, and so that'll certainly help. As for chemicals to fight the sugarcane aphid, currently the number of insecticides available remains just two, but Dr. Bean says a third is on the way. Hopefully we'll have that third product that's a completely different chemical, which will be nice to have so that we can rotate the use of those insecticides and hopefully avoid the aphid becoming resistant to those chemicals. In Amarillo, I'm James Hunt for the Texas Farm Bureau Radio Network. It's been a roller coaster week for funding USDA's Commodity Credit Corporation. At first, it looked like the House was not going to replenish CCC funding in their continuing resolution to keep the government running, and that would delay farm program payments. However, late Tuesday night, a deal was reached. Republicans agreed to allow more food and nutrition funding in exchange for funding the CCC. Democrats have argued the CCC needs more accountability. Top Senate Ag Committee Democrat Debbie Stabenow and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi now say the continuing resolution passed by the House includes that accountability. More money is available to help farmers and ranchers fight feral hogs. Jessica Domo reports. Approximately $12 million is now available to help farmers, ranchers, and landowners control feral hogs or wild pigs. The funding is available through the Natural Resources Conservation Service's Federal Swine Eradication and Control Program. Non-federal, not-for-profit partners are encouraged to apply for the aid to help trap and control feral swine. Projects may be one to three years in duration. The deadline to apply is November 5th. You can apply at grants.gov. Search for FSCP for Federal Swine Control Program. That's grants.gov. Search FSCP. 
Again, that deadline to apply is November 5th. For the Texas Farm Bureau Radio Network, I'm Jessica Dolmel. Central Texas cotton is in better shape than expected after receiving some very untimely rains. Tom Nicoletti has more from Waco. For today's program, we go to Dr. Shane McClellan. He is Texas AgriLife Extension Agent for McClellan County. Shane has more on regional agriculture in the Central Texas Blacklands for late September. After the recent rains, our cotton harvest was paused just long enough for fields to dry up. Surprisingly to many, the cotton had little damage. It was stringing out some, and there were reports of some seed sprouts. But overall, after receiving 10 to 12 inches of rain to our cotton fields here in Central Texas, we're actually in much better shape than we thought. There will probably be a hickey on the quality grade of our cotton, but only time will tell on that. Cotton harvest did start back up last week and ran good. Uh, Producers were having good days, some long days, and then the weather was somewhat cool, damp, and the sky was overcast. It would have been much better if it was a hot, sunny day uh, just to make cotton harvest go better. Cotton harvest will continue once we warm up and the soils dry out. Livestock producers that graze out livestock on small grains have been planting oats and wheat. Volunteer ryegrass stands are up out in our pastures and are off to a great early season start. Our local weather pattern is usually drier this time of year, and those early flushes of ryegrass typically die out from a lack of moisture and then a steady south wind that dries the soil out. Pastures are in much better shape this time of year than they have been in several years. Hay producers will get another cutting, and some are even cutting right now. There have been armyworms in central Texas, but the numbers have been light. I have heard of a few hay growers in, in just some certain areas of the county that had the option of either spraying farmy worms or cutting, and they chose to go ahead and cut. It was a little early, about a week early, but they saved that extra input cost they would have from spraying an insecticide. The wet weather pattern should keep our army worm numbers down for now, but if we come out of this wet weather with warm sunny days and not 60 to 70 degrees, then all of our forage producers need to be on the lookout for army worms. Go scout those fields early in the morning when they're kind of active, Walk through there, drag your boot through there, and you can find them emerging and down there on the bottom of the of the plant. By the way, uh, the Texas and Southwestern Cattle Raisers Association uh, named uh, you as uh, the 2020 Outstanding County Extension Agent for Beef recently. Congratulations on that honor. Thank you. We've got a, a very good Extension Beef and Forage Committee. They challenge me. There's no yes men or women on that table. They represent a large a large part of our industry here in beef and forage in the Central Texas area, uh, McLennan County specifically. They put me up to a task and challenge me. We meet, plan those, those programs, identify issues, current and emerging needs, and just what we needed to put out there for beef and forage producers to help help them make decisions, give them some tools and some ideas, and bring speakers in that can can share their experience and their knowledge, and just help all of our beef and forage producers be profitable, stay in business. I lean back on that award; is great, proud of it. But beef and forage committee is what would set me up to receive that. That is Dr. Shane McClellan with the Texas AgriLife Extension Service in Waco. I'm Tom Nicoletti with the Texas Farm Bureau Radio Network. Purchasing hay should be based on animal requirements, and that requires a forage analysis to know what you're buying. Dr. Vanessa Olson has some advice on buying the right hay for your herd. For optimal production, forage quality should be matched as closely as possible to the nutritional needs of the animal. Low-quality forage can result in reduced animal performance and increased supplemental feeding costs. Whereas hay of sufficient quality, little or no supplementation will be necessary to meet the animal's nutritional needs. 
Keep in mind that not all forage or hay is created equal. There is great variation between forages and nutrient content can vary dramatically, even within a particular type of forage. Several factors influence hay quality, such as maturity, time of harvesting, forage species and variety, fertilization, temperature, leaf to stem ratio, and weather at harvesting and baling. Regardless if you are buying hay or feeding the hay you raised, it is a good idea to test the hay to determine what if any supplementation will be needed when the hay is fed. When collecting samples, a good practice is to sample approximately 10% of the bales from a particular cutting or load. Oftentimes, a hay probe can be borrowed from your county extension office. Samples should be taken from bales that would represent hay from the entire field. If you haven't done so already, now is the time to get a nutrient analysis of all available hay and forage, sort your cattle based on their nutrient requirements, properly match available forage and hay to the different groups of cattle, and make sure their nutrient requirements are being met. Feeding cattle is never cheap, but producers with information about what they are feeding can be more efficient. This is Dr. Vanessa Olson with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension in Overton for the Texas Farm Bureau Roundup. It looks as though government payments may make up almost 40% of farm income this year, with even more congressional aid possibly on the way in the next coronavirus relief package. Texas Congressman Mike Conaway, the ranking Republican on the House Agriculture Committee, spoke during a virtual event hosted by AgriPulse. Conaway says this level of government help for U.S. agriculture isn't sustainable. Well, no, we cannot maintain this level, unprecedented level. If you go back to this time last year when we had the first MFP payments and everything has happened since, that would be a stunning amount of money to put in any one farm bill that either Colin or I would get to write in the past. We got away from ad hoc disaster relief for the right reasons because you're always subject to the whim of what's going on in Washington, D.C. And if a disaster happens in rural America and the emphasis is not in D.C. is appropriate, then you're not going to get it. Conaway says strengthening the disaster programs in the Farm Bill is a much more sustainable way to help agriculture. What bakers and producers need is a steady state understanding of where their protections are going to be. But we have moved toward that. We have been starting at 17 WIP and now WIP Plus and everything else that's going on, the MFV payments and the COVID amounts. We can't sustain that. And I would agree with Chairman Peterson that bulking up the safety net that they can rely on, I think is a better alternative or a better process. And it's more repeatable, sustainable for producers and bankers out there. Improving the safety net for producers in the future is going to be a challenge when Congress writes a new farm bill. It would require that the chairman in 2023, if that's when they write the next farm bill, have new resources to make that happen. We did a pretty good job in 2018 of having no new money and shuffling it around as best we could, trying to take care of Title I, all those things that were going on at that point in time. I think realistically, whoever's in charge in 2023 will need new resources. I don't think you'll be able to argue that you get the level of resources that we've had with MFP and WIP2, WIP Plus, and these COVID payments. You're not going to be able to get that kind of new money in. Getting new resources for the agricultural safety net will either require other areas of the government to spend less or the federal government to borrow more money. Conaway prefers that other areas of government spend less, but that's not something that Congress is very good at making happen. 
infer that other areas of government uh, spend less. But these will be priority setting exercises that, quite frankly, Congress doesn't do very well because we can borrow money. It's easier to not make those hard trade-offs than to make them. But I would argue that food policy, food security is a national security interest. It should be up there with the kinds of rationale as to why you would spend money here and not somewhere else in the federal government. Texas Congressman Mike Conaway. By the way, Conaway is planning to retire from Congress at the end of this current term. What should you consider when finding a place to hunt dove? I'm Jessica Dolmel, and I'll have more on Texas Ag Today. And if you've ever had foot pain, you know it can be miserable, and it can be just as bad for your dog. Texas veterinarian Dr. Bob Judd takes a look at a common cause of foot pain in dogs coming up next on Texas Ag Today. And we're back looking at another lopsided matchup, Jim. Today we have a combine taking on a train. Yeah, that heavy train is about a thousand times heavier than the combine. No competition there. Right, especially given that it'll take at least a mile to stop that train. That's 18 football fields. It's no contest. Every day people are injured or killed trying to beat a train at rail crossings. See tracks, think train. This message brought to you by Operation Lifesaver. You're listening to the latest news in Texas agriculture on Texas Ag Today. Well, no one likes foot pain, and guess what? Your dog doesn't like it either. Dr. Bob Judd takes a look at a common cause of foot pain in dogs. Corns are hard and painful growths on the foot pads of dogs. These pads are common in racing and retired greyhounds, but can occur in other breeds as well. We really don't know the cause of the corns, but it is believed it is due to the absence of fat in the greyhound's foot pads, so there is less padding than in other dogs, and trauma to the pad from the underlying bone causes a corn to develop. Some veterinarians believe it may be due to foot pad cuts or other trauma, and then scarring develops leading to a corn. Also, it's possible a foreign body or even a papilloma virus could be involved. Most dogs with corns are painful and will be limping on the affected leg. Certainly your vet will want to examine and x-ray the area to make sure there is no fracture or other disease. There are many methods of treating these corns and some folks recommend soaking the paws and then applying manual pressure to express the corns. Although this could be effective, it is likely very painful to use enough pressure on the pad to express these corns. Surgically removing the corns is an option, but it is possible the corns may recur. The digit can be amputated and although this will solve the problem in that digit, Corns may recur in other digits, so amputation would be a last resort. Silicone has also been injected under the corns to provide padding and has been effective short-term in some cases. It's also possible to use a rotary tool and grind down the corn below the pad surface to decrease pressure when walking on the pad. And a medication called Kerasol can be used to soften the corn and decrease pain. Corns can also be removed with a dental elevator, but may recur in just a few weeks. I'm Dr. Bob Judd. This is the Texas Farm Bureau Radio Network. What should you consider when finding a spot to hunt dove? Jessica Domel has some hunting tips in today's wildlife report. Is it better to hunt dove near a pond, a field, or a tree line? For that answer, we're joined again today by Bobby Thornton, co-founder of the Texas Dove Hunters Association. It's what is your preference? 
they do like the water. I personally, my favorite hunt is around a tank with just a couple people and a good dog and just have a lot of fun because the birds come in. They, they're slowing down to the tank, and it's just a lot of fun to see them hit the water and see that dog take off after them. But that's kind of my favorite hunt. I don't get to do that a whole lot. Some people prefer to hunt a tree line. They've got shade. Some people prefer to hunt out by an open bale of hay or in a field. I can't tell you that one is better than the other simply because it's all a matter of timing, catching the birds in or out, coming in or out of the field. Enter, you know, to or from water, and you know where you like to be. I would say this: I would recommend not hunting where they feed. In other words, if you're hunting a field that's been commercially grown for birds, and I say commercially, meaning like a commercial crop that is like milo or wheat or corn or something that they harvest just before bird season or right about at the time the season opens, don't hunt in the middle of the field. Black oil sunflowers. Don't hunt in the middle of the field. If you hunt where they feed, they won't come back. So you need to hunt around the perimeter of the field. Let them have their chance to go in and eat and to come back out. That was Bobby Thornton for the Texas Dove Hunters Association. Dove season in the North Zone is open till November 12th. It reopens in December. Dove season for the Central and South Zone is open until November 1st. Those also reopen in December. For the Texas Farm Bureau Radio Network, I'm Jessica Dolmel. Well, the cattle market has turned around here as we get to the end of the week. We saw a higher close in both live and feeder cattle futures today. The cotton market finishing higher as well. We'll take a look at all of the livestock, cotton, grain, and energy markets coming up next on Texas Ag Today. Truck drivers, if you're stuck on a railroad crossing, don't just sit there. It takes a freight train more than a mile to stop, even in an emergency. So by the time you hear this, it could be too late to save your truck and maybe your license or your life. Instead, immediately get out of your truck, away from the tracks, and call the number on the emergency sign at the crossing. That gives the railroad a chance to stop trains before they get to you. Always call the emergency number. It could save your truck, your license, and your life. Go to oli.org for info. We're keeping you informed on everything happening in Texas agriculture on Texas Ag Today. After a lower start this week, we've turned this futures market around. We ended up closing higher both yesterday and today in both live and feeder cattle futures. October live cattle up 87 today, closing at 108.02. December up $1.07, 112.27. February live cattle up 85 at 115.65. October feeder cattle up 75 cents, 142.27. November feeders up 70 at 142.35. Cash cattle markets, we'll start with fed cattle. Still no sales to report, but we are seeing some bids finally from the packers. These higher futures markets probably making the Packers go ahead and step into the market and bid on some cattle. We've got bids at 103 here in Texas, going all the way up to 105 up in Iowa. Dressed bids at 163 in Nebraska. Looks like the feedlots are asking 106 to 108 this week. Boxed beef prices are higher. Choice up $1.71 at 217.58. Select up 59 cents, 208.19. Let's check a couple of feeder cattle auctions. We'll start with El Campo Livestock and El Campo. 
They sold yesterday with two to three weight steers bringing a dollar sixty to a dollar seventy four. Three to four weight steers a dollar fifty eight to a dollar seventy five. Four to five hundred pounders a dollar forty two to a dollar seventy one. Five to six weight steers a dollar thirty one to a dollar fifty one. Six to seven weight steers a dollar twenty four to a dollar thirty a pound. Slaughter cows sold twenty to sixty five cents. Slaughter bulls sixty to eighty five. East Texas livestock in Crockett, Texas, 1,955 head yesterday. The trend was steady to higher. Two to three weight steers, $1.61 to $1.88. Three to four weight steers, $1.41 to $1.88. Four to five hundred pounders, $1.31 to $1.71. Five to six weight steers, $1.24 to $1.48. And six to seven hundred pounders brought $1.15 to $1.36 a pound. Slaughter cows brought 44 to 69 cents. Slaughter bulls 81 to 95. Stocker cows 700 to 13.75 ahead. Back over to the futures market. Lean hogs closed lower. October down two cents, 69.47. December down a dollar seven at 63.27. October class three milk down 36 cents, 18.09 a hundredweight. The cotton market closed higher after trading on both sides of the market. It seemed like the cotton market was following the Dow Jones. It flip-flopped back on both sides of the market all day as well. We also had the USDA weekly export sales report released this morning. It wasn't that great for cotton, but we did see good shipment numbers in the report, so maybe that gave us a bit of support in the market. We closed with the December cotton contract up 21 points, 65.46. March cotton up 11, 66.25. The grain markets mostly lower. Kansas City wheat finishing about a penny to a penny and a half lower. December wheat down one and a quarter, 4.83. New crop July wheat down a penny at 5.07 and a half. December corn down a nickel, closing at 3.63 and a half. The energy markets traded higher with October natural gas up 11 cents, 224. November crude oil up 20 at 40.13 a barrel. In the financials, the Dow Jones Industrial Average up 61 at 26,824. The NASDAQ up 35, 10,668. The S&P 500 up 9, 3,246. Well, that's a wrap up on the markets, and that's a wrap up on this episode of Texas Ag Today. Thanks so much for sticking with us. We'll be right back here tomorrow to wrap up the week on Friday. Be sure to tune in for the latest news in Texas agriculture right here on Texas Ag Today. Thanks for listening to Texas Ag Today. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. For more Texas Ag news and information, check out our website at texasfarmbureau.org or tfbradio.com. Texas Ag Today is a production of the Texas Farm Bureau Radio Network.